So we're in our last class. Uh, we have spent six weeks talking about all of the way, all of the different ways that we are and can be wrong. Uh, Y'all spent last week going through proverbs in light of the things that we've talked about. I, I like to talk about proverbs as being uh, basically Twitter Bible Twitter because all of the verses tend to be tweet length. And, uh, and they just they make they make great tweets, and it's also a great um, sort of instruction manual for living on social media. We did a social media class here a few years ago, and Proverbs was a big part of that. Kind of reintroduced me to that whole book, and then this class has done it again. Uh, today, uh, since we've talked about all the ways that we are wrong, this this week we're going to talk about learning to enjoy that. <laughs> because we spend so much time hating being wrong, um, and, and there are some things that error brings into our lives that, that we don't often talk about from that side. Um, and the first thing that we have to do um, to embrace error is to admit that it exists in our lives. And uh, that's what we commonly know as confession. Um, writer named Paul Levy says, if you don't acknowledge that mistakes occurred, you'll never eliminate the likelihood that they'll occur again. Uh, there are entire industries built around eliminating error from the workforce uh, because there, there are some places where it's very important to make as few mistakes as possible. Things like nuclear energy, air traffic control, um, it's very important to know whether or not the salmon has gone bad. There are significant real-life consequences to making mistakes in those areas. And so you have, you have this entire, I, and I'm, I'm blanking on the name of it, but this entire industry built around eliminating errors from the workforce. Um, it's, the church ideally is set up to do that kind of thing as well within our community. And acknowledging and embracing error allows us to do several things better. It allows us to anticipate mistakes. It allows us to prevent them from happening, um, or at least prevent them from happening as often as they would otherwise. And it allows us to respond appropriately when preventative measures fail. Um, there's a passage, a, a psalm, uh, where David, I guess it's David, talks about uh, confession. says, when I kept it all inside, my bones turned to powder. This is Psalm 32. My words became day-long groans. The pressure never let up. All the juices of my life dried up. And he's talking about keeping the secrets. When, when we have this, this evil, the sins in our lives, this error that we don't want other people to see, it just dries us up. But then I let it all out, he says. I said, I'll make a clean breast of my failures to God. Suddenly the pressure was gone, my guilt dissolved, my sin disappeared. These things add up, he says. Every one of us needs to pray. When all hell breaks loose and the dam bursts, we'll be on high ground untouched. Um, one of the best ways to respond to error, to acknowledge our own fallibility is listening. Uh, Catherine Schultz, the author of the book Being Wrong that I've 
referred to again and again in this class as listening is one of the best ways that we can make room in our lives for our own fallibility. We tend to focus in conversation, we tend to focus on what we're interested in knowing about. Um, and, and what that means is if, if we're pretty sure we know something, then, or, or we have a good grasp on what's being discussed, we start focusing on those things that we're interested in. Uh, we, we narrow our focus, we attend only to the details that support what we believe in. Um, or we just cease to listen altogether. We, we look for the things that reinforce what we already think we know. And however, Schultz says, when we are aware that we could be wrong, we are far more inclined to hear other people out. Um, I, I, I like to joke, after reading Schultz's book and, and, and really trying to reorient myself to, a, to acknowledge that at any given point I am wrong about something that, uh, that I'm talking about or that I believe, um, I started joking that the only people that I paid attention to anymore were people that I disagreed with. Because if somebody agreed with me, and I knew I was wrong, then they, by definition, were already wrong. And so the only people that it made sense to listen to were the people that disagreed with me, because they were the only people that had a chance of being right. And that's kind of a twisted logic, but it's also very useful in getting out of uh, what we call... Those, those thought bubbles that we get into where we only talk with people that agree with us. And that's, that's particularly a danger on social media uh, because one of, the great, well, one of the great things about social media has been that anybody with any kind of niche interest can find a community of people that share that interest or share that belief so they don't feel so alone we also tend to uh, get pointed into groups that only agree with us, and so it is very difficult on social media to find people to talk with that don't agree with you and can actually talk with you in constructive ways. Um, I've actually, recently I've actually found a, a group of uh, theologians on Twitter that I love to follow and watch them talk because they have these great conversations. And it's just, it's, it's almost unimaginable to watch people talk about religion on Twitter in constructive ways. Uh, so too often we listen only to defend or to argue. Um, now, it, it, I enjoy a spirited argument as much as the next person. For years I, I worked with an editor and we would get into like shouting matches that were 10 minutes long over phrasing and punctuation and the details of a sentence. I mean, and, and we would lit, I mean, our voices would raise and we would talk faster and we would literally be yelling at each other over the phone. But in, in, in those, and, and, and it was just like minute stuff. It's like, no, that, that comma needs to go right there. You need a comma there. It was that kind of discussion at fever pitch. But those kinds of conversations are really only useful if 
both people have a shared, agreed, higher ideal. Because we knew that we weren't, we weren't yelling at each other. We were, we were trying to make a, we were trying to be in service of the story. And we knew, and both of us knew that our goal was to make the story that I was writing better. And so we never, we never got mad at each other no matter how loud we got because we knew that the minute one of us realized that the other had made the case or that a better idea had come up, that the argument would go away and the story would be what the story needed to be. It's, it's kind of the same way um, with people in religious settings. Um, when, when those arguments are healthy, uh, and, and I grew up, grew up with a weird bunch of kids because they were all like very theology minded and so we would sit around and have these religious discussions that you know only Church of Christ boys can have <laughs> um, but again as, as misguided as some of those conversations probably were they were also healthy in the sense that we were all looking to a higher purpose and not just fighting with each other and it's when those arguments become fighting with each other that they become unhealthy arguments as opposed to, to healthy ones like my editor and I had. Ah, losing my notes. Um, so from being wrong, here are some ways that we can try to, we can use listening to try to prevent mistakes. Uh, we can foster the ability to listen to each other and the freedom to speak our minds. Um, and I, I think this is, this is especially useful um, in a church setting. Um, we can create open and transparent environments instead of cultures of secrecy and concealment. Uh, we can permit and encourage everyone, not just a powerful inner circle, to speak up when they see the potential for error. On a political level, you can see that this sounds a lot like democracy. Um, and one of the reasons that Enlightenment era thinkers advised letting all ideas flourish and this, this concept of freedom of speech came up was because regardless, well, is that truth and error aren't always recognized in the immediate moment. And that an idea that sounds really smart in the, in the group setting when it's brought up may in fact actually be a bad idea and something that sounds absolutely crazy may have some long-term ramifications uh, long-term benefits that aren't immediately known. Here's, here's Benjamin Franklin talking about the Constitution. He says, I confess there are several parts of this Constitution which I do not at present approve, but I am not sure that I shall never approve them. For having lived long, I have experienced many instances of being obliged by better information or fuller consideration uh, to change opinions even on important subjects, which I once thought right, but found to be otherwise. So what do you get when you have a government or any body of authority? It could be church leaders, it could be a boss that cannot and will or will not acknowledge their fallibility. What, do you, what, what happens in that setting? 
when the leader or the boss cannot be wrong. Stifles other people's opinions. Right? <clears throat> yeah, it, it quashes dissent uh, in government. Uh, when, when you're talking about governmental authority, uh, those people kind of <clears throat> go away one way or another. You know, they, 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 may, they may be deported, they may be jailed, they may be killed, but if you are, if, if you're in an authoritarian system, you don't get to oppose that system for very long, no matter how wrong they are. And so the best way to safeguard against error is to embrace it through confession, through listening, through acknowledging the ways that we can be wrong. I saw a quote um, from Lee Camp, because I, uh, Lee and I are friends on Facebook, and I follow the token stuff, and he posted, some of you may have seen this, about his latest tokens podcast, which uh, has a poet in Yale Divinity School lecturer named Chris Wyman, I believe the, the name is pronounced, and they were talking about uh, faith and the opposite of faith. So when you, th when you think of the opposite of faith, what do you think of? Doubt. Okay. <laughs> certainty. <laughs> okay, certainty and doubt. And then those, those are the two things that tend to get brought up. And, he's, and so Chris Wyman says that the opposite of faith is not doubt. It's certainty. One of the greatest gifts that God has given us is his unknowability. <clears throat> Since I don't think that we're asked to turn away from doubt, I think we're asked to go into it. And again, he repeats, the opposite of faith is not doubt, it's certainty. That's the opposite of faith. If you're certain about what God is, if you're certain about what God wants for your life, I think you've got a problem. I think you've got an idol to worship. All right, so what is doubt? According to Catherine Schultz, doubt is the act of challenging our beliefs. And she says, if we have developed formal methods for challenging the things that we believe in, it's because our hearts are very bad at doing it naturally. We tend, we tend to get an idea, and we believe it's right, and we stick with it. And the harder that we stick with it, the more likely it is to turn into a negative. What doubt in this context is not, it's, we're not talking about the kind, we're not talking about like Hamlet kind of doubt, where it's agony in the face of a difficult decision and you've got, you've got this situation where no matter what you do, you're going you're gonna to cause problems for somebody. It's, 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 you're stuck with the, trying to make the better of two bad decisions. We're not talking about that kind of doubt. We're not talking about the doubt that comes from insecurity or apprehension or indifference. I love what Schultz says that it is. He says, this is an active investigative doubt, the kind that inspires us to wander onto shaky limbs or out into left field, the kind that doesn't divide the mind so much as multiply it, like a tree in which there are three blackbirds. Um, there, there's a, a poem she had referenced earlier, uh, and I, I, I think it... It was, I am, of, I am of three minds like a tree with three blackbirds. So 
This kind of doubt is like a tree in which there are three blackbirds and the entire Bronx Zoo. This is the doubt we stand to sacrifice if we can't embrace error. The doubt of curiosity, the doubt not of insecurity, apprehension, or indifference, but the doubt of curiosity, possibility, and wonder. And that kind of doubt leads us into another way of embracing error. Not embracing it for the purpose of getting rid of it, which we've talked about already, but embracing it for the pleasure of experiencing it. And what do I mean by that? Do I mean that we should sin that, sin that grace may abound, as Paul talks about in Romans 6? God forbid. Uh, but there are... We've talked about error being uh, not a bug, but a feature in here. And when being in error runs to the negative side, that's when it becomes evil. The kind of, if you've, been, if you've been to first service or if you're about to go to second service, Josh talks a lot about evil today. And that's, that is a way of being wrong that sort of the dark side of being wrong. Today we're going to talk about the light side of being wrong. Um, one reason to embrace error is because it's funny. Um, it's it, it, with, with a little time, it can be, the things that we do wrong can be really funny. It can be very, very funny uh, seeing other people be wrong. Um, have I told the story in here of getting into trouble in church when I was a kid? I'm not sure if I have. So this is, this is one of my favorite family stories of being wrong. Um, when I was a little kid, Went to, I went to West End as a kid, and Jim Bill McIntyre was the preacher there. And Jim Bill would tell stories about me getting into trouble at church, just far and wide. I mean, people would come and visit West End, meet my parents, and go, I'm so sorry. <laughs> and there was one day that I was acting up. And if you've, if you've been to the West End, you know that you have to go, to go out the front, you have to walk by the stage where the pulpit is to go out those front doors. So I'm acting up. My mom picks me up, whisks me out front door to spank me out in the front yard by the trees that are no longer there, thank goodness. Um, and as I got right even with the pulpit, Jim Bill's preaching, and I looked up at him and I said, I'm not going to like this. <laughs> Mom would, yeah, spank me, walk me back in, which meant she had to walk by Jim Bill again, and through tears in my eyes, I said, I told you I was not going to like this. <laughs> my mom went and sat down. Now, this is a, a long way around to my point, but I, like, I love this story. So, the Nancy's father is a preacher. The night that I met my future father-in-law, we got to talking about kids getting into trouble in church. And he said, your preacher had the best story about a kid getting into trouble in church. And he proceeded to tell me that story that I just told you. And I looked at my future father-in-law and I said, yeah, you're sitting next to me. <laughs> the part of the story that Jim Bill never told, and the part of the story my future father-in-law did not know, but that made this story a legend in our family is that my mother was so flustered after having to take me out and give me two spankings 
that she sat down next to somebody who was not my father. <laughs> my father was six foot eight and weighed 165 pounds. She still sat down next to somebody that was not my father. So, error makes for really funny stories. <laughs> um, and, and, and there are some there are some theories about why this works. There's there's the superiority theory of humor, which is um, look at look at look at those people who are less. Is, is, it's laughing at people who we consider less than us. People that are you know, it's it's the the source of Pol the Polish joke fad of the set, but any any kind of stuff like that, the you know America's funniest home videos kind of uh, kind of stuff. There's also the the self improvement theory of humor, which is that we see those that we recognize that grain of truth in the joke or in the comedy and go, yeah, I see that. That reminds me not to be that. Or I remember when I did something like that. And then there's also the incongruity theory of humor, which is kind of this gap between um, what we know and what we see others doing. Um, this is the humor in that exploitable gap between what we know and believe and what others, uh, perhaps the participants in a movie like Tootsie or Mrs. Doubtfire, know and believe because those movies aren't nearly as funny unless you're already in on the joke beforehand. If you're if you're in on the joke in a Mrs. Doubtfire or in a Tootsie, then it's really funny. But if you're if you were in that story without that extra piece of knowledge, it's it's not so much. But so it's it's that difference between uh, having having some knowledge and not or uh, just getting something other than what you expect. Um, Schultz says, the very thing that leads us to err, a gap between the world as it is and the world that we think it is, also produces the pleasure of comedy. Uh, there's a Yiddish proverb that says, we plan, God laughs. I, always like, I like to think of God as having a great sense of humor because I mean, you know, our, our lives must look like Mrs. Doubtfire to to God because there's so much that we are experiencing without seeing the full story and it's got to be just hysterically funny to him. Uh, Woody Allen uh, is credited with a, a paraphrase of this, if you want to make God laugh, tell him about your plans. And Schultz again says, uh, if, if we want to keep laughing as much as we currently do, we must also keep fumbling into the gap between the world as we think it is and the world as it turns out to be. We must keep on getting things wrong. At best, we can learn to laugh at these mistakes, but at the very least, we can take comfort in them from the fact that, in the broadest sense, we laugh because of these mistakes. Another reason, uh, related em reason even, to uh, embrace error is because it's art. And again, to quote Schultz, like error, art comes about because we cannot grasp things directly as they are. And so that's the reason that I had the Picasso uh, at 
the beginning of class sitting because I figured what better way to, to, to start thinking about embracing error than to have a portrait of nudes that don't actually look like people at the beginning of a Sunday school class. Van <laughs> um, Gogh's Starry Night here doesn't look anything like any Starry Night that I've ever seen, but I recognize the beauty and the imagination in that painting. And so looking, to, to me, looking at this painting is a little like listening to a person from many, many years ago and seeing that perspective come through the, come through the years visually. Um, and I, I always wonder, since we, we, we can't, we can never see something or imagine something and recreate it exactly as it is. And I wonder if that's not one of the reasons that the prohibition against graven images of God is raised to the level of the, the top ten, is in the Ten Commandments. Um, because once you start putting form on things, you're locking them into place. Um, and if you can't adequately convey the world around you through artistic representation, you're certainly not going to be able to do that with God. You're going to get it wrong. Because you, and because you've set it in stone, you're stuck with both its limitations and its misrepresentations. When I would write an album review for USA Today and somebody uh, would ask me what I thought of the album before I was ready to write about it, I, I would usually aver and not, not talk about it because I knew once that I hadn't made up my mind about it yet and once I put it into words, I would be locked into those words. To say, it would be very hard for me to break out of whatever I said. And so I wouldn't say anything while I was still kind of mulling it and figuring out what I really felt. And it, it, it's kind of like... <laughs> when you're at work and there are things that you want to say but you really don't want to have a paper trail and so you won't put them in writing because then you're setting setting them in stone and you can't it, it makes it much harder to makes it much harder to change it makes it much harder to take back what you've said uh, I think it's a little like that with uh, with graven images uh, much as Jesus says in Matthew 25, God knows that graven images will create an expectation in the Israelites that will negate their ability to see what he's doing in their midst. We talked in one of the early classes about um, the sheep and the goats. The thing that the sheep and the goats had in common was that both of them had this idea of what Jesus was supposed to look like. And neither one of them saw what they were looking for in Jesus. And, and it's, it's, it's the, the, the same sort of way with graven images. Um, you, start, you start locking those things in and it makes it, it makes it really hard to see anything but that. And the one thing that we know, or one thing that we know about Jesus and God is Jesus is often anything but what we're imagining and what we're looking for. Uh, Picasso said, we all know that art is not truth. Art is a lie that makes us realize the truth, at least the truth 
that is given to us to understand. Uh, I mean, there, are, there actually have been movements, uh, there have been, through history, there have been, there have been both movements of, in art which were trying to avoid this notion of what we get wrong when we create art. Um, there also have been anti-art movements where people have kind of taken that, groups of people have taken that notion of the graven images and expanded that, where it's not just about not making graven images of God, it's about there shouldn't be that kind of, that kind of art at all. Um, and Schultz says the link between error and art is not an indictment of art, but a defense of error. Our separate subjective consciousness look around and see instead Monet's water lilies or Starry Night or the, the Picasso painting that uh, Demoiselle ah, I can't pronounce it the Demoiselle d'Avignon. We likewise we can make Bay a wolf or Star Wars or Horton Hears a Who for the same reasons that we can make mistakes because we are capable of conjuring the world not just as it is but also as it is not. And our capacity to err is inseparable from our imagination. And later she says, if we could contrive to embrace error as we embrace art, we would see that it bestows on us these same gifts. Our mistakes, when we face up to them, show us both the world and the self from previously unseen angles and remind us to care about perspectives other than our own. And whether we like it or not, they also serve as real-life plot devices, advancing our own story in directions we can never foresee. Through error, as through the best works of art, we both lose and find ourselves. Uh, I, I remember this, a, a quote that I love to use, and I, I found, uh, I went to try to track it down, and it's by Frank Schaefer, who is the son of a noted theologian named Francis Schaeffer, who I read in, in that crazy group of theological Church of Christ kids. We read a lot of Francis Schaeffer in high school. And so this is his son. He said, um, he said, with all due deference to theologians, every true story begins with the words, in spite of what I thought at the time. In addition to fun, uh, to, to humor and art, Error is also science. Or at least it drives science. No, it's science. There's, a, there's an extra line. Uh, <laughs> like art, being wrong gives us a reason um, and means to pursue science. It's different, of course. Art revels in subjectivity, in the individual perspective, uh, while science strives for objectivity and for replicable results. Science comes from a desire to move beyond our errancy, to test our assumptions, to take ourselves out of the picture. But all three of these come, we, we, have, we have humor, we have art, we have science, because we live in a world where we're wrong, and we're trying, we're trying to do something about it, whether it's to, 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 to mitigate it by, by laughing at ourselves, uh, whether we're 
trying to create something different that we see in the world, you know, trying, trying to reflect one of the first things that we learn about God, um, or whether we're trying to figure out what it is we've got wrong, trying to test our assumptions. And finally, it's who we are. Not much else in the physical world makes mistakes. God doesn't, at least not as we understand him. Machines don't, except as we create and maintain them. My dogs may never catch the rabbit that lives in the neighbor's yard, but comes over to ours in the morning before the dogs get let out. I don't seem to spend a lot of time dwelling on their inability to catch the rabbit. Being wrong not only makes us human, but our individually specific sets of mistakes and incorrect assumptions about the world around us differentiate us from everybody else in here. I have, I have a completely different way of being wrong than you do, or than you, or than you. We're all, we're all wrong in very different ways, and that makes us the individuals that we are. Um, Error makes us human. Our particular errors allow us to continually create and recreate ourselves. It, it, it's similar to the way I have a, um, have a genetic mutation called Lynch syndrome that predisposes me to colon cancer, which I had about nine, nine years ago about this time. And um, I, I, I describe it as a, a, broken, a, 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 a broken copier that just keeps churning out mistake after mistake after mistake, and eventually there's a pile that becomes a tumor. And in the same way that genetic mutations create different versions of us and create enough variety and um, enough of a gene pool that we that, that a community can survive. If you get if you get too homogenous, if you get too small, um, it's going to that, that community is not going to be able to survive. Um, our embracing of error in ourselves and others allows us to thrive and evolve socially. And so, finally, let's look at wrongness as optimism it, 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 and a way of getting through the world. It gets us started, it keeps us going. Uh, again, back to Schultz, we err because we believe above all in ourselves. No matter how often we have gotten things wrong in the past, we evince an abiding and touching faith in our own stories and theories. In that way, error, even though we will sometimes despair of our mistakes and the ways that we get things wrong and we just, and, and getting something wrong will just like make us want to crawl under the table and curl into a ball until it goes away. Um, error can be a lot more like hope. Um, we make mistakes because we believe that we can get it right. If not this time, then the next time. We believe that we might finally finish writing that book, uh, or that this might finally be the year the Titans win the Super Bowl. We live in that place between, well, yeah, this is how things are right now, and wait till next year. We come up with new theories, 
because we feel we can improve on the old ones. Uh, there was a philosopher named Richard Rorty talked about um, to accept our own fallibility is to well to accept our own fallibility is to embrace what philosopher Richard Rorty called the permanent possibility of someone's having a better idea. We tell our stories about the world as wrong-headed and as incomplete as they can be because it helps us realize better stories, better ideas, better possibilities, and better people lie ahead. Um, we have a few minutes left in class today. Um, does anybody have anything that they'd like to add or bring up or ask about? I've kind of come to the end of what I have to talk about. As you reflect on your own life and experience and what you've learned in this class about being wrong, is on the other side, is there anything about which you would be like, it's important that I think this is right? Like, are there, are there, is there anything, or do, do you think you're, you're comfortable with everything being? Uh, well, in, in the abstract, I think that I, I could literally be wrong at almost any point about anything. Um, I'm about as sure as I can be that I have two hands. Um, and there, but I, I think the answer to your question, from the way that I think about it, is there are things that I am willing to be wrong about, that I'm, that, that I'm going to stick to because I would rather be wrong about that than keep looking. Uh, for example, I'm willing to be wrong about Jesus. It's like I would, I would rather, I would rather follow Jesus and be wrong than be right about whatever other option there is. Um, because I, I have no idea how I would find that other thing. Um, and this is this is one that I, I I'm staking my claim there, and I think we all we all have those things whether we know them or not, and I think it's important for us to reflect on those and know what those things are because otherwise those things are going to be there and they're going to be driving you and you will have no earthly idea what it is that's driving you. Jesus, I'm going to be wrong about that. Um, Conceptually, um, I am willing to be wrong about Nancy being the best partner for me to go through life. Okay, maybe there's somebody else that would be better. I'm not going. That's that's a that's a choice that I've made that I'm sticking with. Um, I, I used to predict. Um, have to predict like Grammy winners and CMA winners and stuff like that, which I really hated doing because I had no idea. Um, and, and I learned that there were there were ones that I really like the idea. I, I really like to imagine a world in which this person wins, and I would rather pick that person and be wrong and give them a plug than be right about something I didn't really care about. <laughs> Um, so, so the short answer is yes, there are. Jesus 
being the big... Now, there are a lot of ways of looking at Jesus and thinking about Jesus and how all of that works that I hold pretty loosely because I know that however I think about it, I'm, I'm at the very least missing an important piece. But as far as that's the direction I want to go in, I'm there for that, right or wrong. How about you? Yeah, I, I was the same thing. It's just, you know, we all have to function, so we have to make it a, to choose not to decide a school choice, right? right. So we, we choose, and, and there is, even though we stake our claim there, at the same time we say, okay, well, I might be wrong. And, you know, you're still not limit. you're still not saying I'm not, definitely not wrong. Right. You are willing to, there's somehow we just have to, on some things, just say this is what I think is right. Yeah. Well, and it, and you you have to it, the the one of the tensions of living that way is you have to live in in that tension between knowing that everything could be different than you think it is, but living as if what you think is right. It's like I I know that I'm wrong. I still have to live as if I'm convinced I'm right. But I also have but I also have to be. I have to hold those, uh, most of those opinions and ideologies and beliefs pretty loosely because I want to find that thing that's better. And if I'm too convinced that whatever lesser thing I believe is absolutely true, then I'm going to have a really hard time seeing where I'm wrong. I'm going to have a really hard time valuing other people's opinions. When we were talking about certainty a few weeks ago, um, one of the things we talked about is that certainty is the killer of imagination. Because if you're absolutely convinced that you are right and you know everything about there's no reason to imagine the world as it is not. And it also kills um, our, ability, our ability to view people, other people as people. Because if you've got everything you need, then there, then other people don't have a function to you other than what they can contribute to what you already believe you know. And that's, that's a really bad path to go down. So I, 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 try, to, I try to believe a lot of things, um, not necessarily to defend a lot of things, which again is a, something that makes uh, living on social media a lot easier when when you don't when you don't feel like you have to defend what you believe um, your conversations go much differently on social media. Yes. Uh, first of all, Brian, I just want to uh, say I really appreciate your leading this class. It's been very good. I can tell you spend a lot of time and talk outside of class in various lessons. So it's, it's been wonderful. Really enjoyed it. Um, my comment is, um, now I use the word binary. Uh, there are some actions, in my view, that are good or evil. Uh, but there's an awful lot of actions that what I would call non-binary. It's not either good or evil. Should one choose this action or that action? It's just different. Um, Perhaps 
non-binary situation, there could be a decision that is more effective, or more productive, or helpful, or whatever. But it seems kind of within the church, the tension is making sure we don't get ultra-binary on a non-binary thing. And I, that's one of the, uh, the good, good blessings of the class is to kind of call us back to, you know, don't, don't, don't it, it's much easier to potentially accept being wrong in an area that's clearly non-binary. You know, just, just decision. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of uh, Barnabas um, and their debate in Acts 15, uh, where, in my view, neither was right or wrong. It wasn't a binary situation. One went this way, the other went that way, and the king had benefited. Right. And that, that often yeah, which is very different from the disagreement between Peter and Paul, where where it was much more a right and wrong as opposed to a difference of opinion. Uh, someone, I saw a hand. But can you hear me? I can. Mm -hmm. Science and error. Mm -hmm. I think you can make a pretty good argument that science usually progresses because of error. Oh, absolutely. But for a long time, Newton's laws were the final answer. Then, about 140 years ago, we learned that in certain domains. They don't hold special relativity, quantum mechanics. Another more recent example is uh, the CDC and some of their recommendations. They have changed their protocol several times. And some people say, well, they just don't know what they're talking about. Actually, I think we should be concerned if they don't change. Right. Early on, uh, they said something about wiping down surfaces. We would wipe down our groceries. Now yeah. we know that that's not the main method. And we have a lot of leftover wipes if any of y'all need aerosols and breathe out. Right. And that's the reason I'm wearing a mask. So I would say that if they don't change what they tell us to do, that is bad science. Good science is when they do change. And so if they don't change, that's what we should remember. Yeah. I mean, most scientists that I know would be the first people to say, yeah, we, there's so much we don't know about yeah. what we're talking about. So we're about. learning all the time. Yeah. And as we learn, we should be changing what we want to do. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think there's there's no reason for science to exist if, if if people aren't making mistakes, there's no reason for science to exist. If people are convinced that they're not making mistakes, there's science has no apparent value to them. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think we are at the end of class, so thank you guys very much. I really appreciate I, I think we may have a bigger class than we started with, which, <laughs> which I really appreciate, everything considered. So thank you all very much. Thank you. Thank you.